Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome. My name's Rowan. Uh, again, one of the pastors here. So great as we gather around this part of God's Word. Uh, I, I want to say, I always think God's Word's important, but there's something extraordinarily important this week. I think it's probably one of the most important moments in all of world history uh, that we're going to read about in Acts. So if questions come up, we'd love to chat with you. I'll try and hang around down the front after the service. Please come and chat if there's things you want to talk through. We want to try and set that culture for us as a church to be interacting with the Word and not just hearing it and going away, but hearing it and thinking through it as you talk with one another as well. So let's, let's pray together and ask God to help us as we understand this passage. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are the God of history that you are in control and that you are bringing about your plans and purposes and that today as we gather together, you understand where we've been at. But you have for us your word to fix our eyes on what matters. We pray that we'd see the world through your eyes and that by your spirit today, you'd shape and mold us into the likeness of your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seems one of the biggest disagreements that we have today just in the world around us is whether or not we have the right to disagree. Whether we can disagree with one another often comes up. On some issues, like your favourite ice cream flavour, doesn't really matter, you can disagree, people are generally fine on that. Whether or not we should legalise cannabis, seems like you can have a discussion about that and disagree, seems like there's a 50-50 thing going on there. Uh, which rugby team we support? If you're like me, you're feeling really sad if you support the Wallabies. Uh, uh, you know, it seems it's fine to disagree, although some think it's not. Uh, you hold some of those views and people get very hot under the collar. But on other issues, I don't know if you've noticed, it's not okay to disagree. To say that same-sex marriage is not good for everyone is not okay. Uh, or, or that there's only one God and one way to God. So shallow-minded, you can't say that. You can't hold that opinion. Or to put forward, really, any point that disagrees with today's kind of woke media... And suddenly everyone's like, you can't say that. It's as if the mainstream media has a monopoly on what views are allowed and what aren't. And if you disagree with any of their views, you're taken out or made an example of. Just the other week, I saw NewsHub's top political editor, Tova O'Brien. I don't know if you saw the interview, uh, but she interviewed the co-leader of the Advance Party before the election, uh, Jamie Lee Ross. Uh, In this post-election interview, she was kind of discussing what went wrong with his political career, really, but the the Advance Party's campaign. And I want to be clear in this, I'm not promoting or agreeing with Jamie Lee Ross's opinions. Some of his ideas around COVID I I pretty strongly disagree with. But the reporter, Tova O'Brien, she just tore shreds off him. She tried to shame him, she asked questions and didn't allow him to answer those questions because she disagreed with where the answer was going. More tellingly, because he disagreed with the mainstream media view. The one in power in this interview, Tova the reporter, exercised her right to disagree with Ross. But Ross wasn't allowed the right to disagree. I'll quote Tova for you. I don't want to hear any of that rubbish. If you're going to come on the show and say things that are factually incorrect, I cannot allow you to answer. And she moves on. What gives us the right to disagree or not? What topics are okay to disagree on and and what topics are are out of bounds. I was chatting with our boys recently about their sex education classes that they're going through at school. Uh, Sarah and I had looked at at the curriculum, the school had let us know that that was kind of happening. And I'd seen that one of the points of this class was that teaching the kids that they had to be accepting of others' views on gender and sexual identity was a core part of this class. Um, it was scary to be same-sex attracted, and so they needed to care and support for people, uh, the people who have got different views. 
And I think we certainly need to make our schools and societies places where everyone feels safe, where you can hold an opinion and not have to fear for your life because you hold it. But the question I asked our boys was, do you feel like it's safe to disagree that same-sex marriage is good? Like, can you hold a traditional view of marriage and gender and feel safe to say that in the classroom? Like you won't be mistreated because of it. And interestingly, as we chatted through it, the boys then went to the class. Um, someone else, in fact, two other people in the class put that question in the question box. People are going, is it okay for me to hold a traditional view or not? It seems that today it's, it's okay to disagree as long as you hold the, the woke, mainstream, media-held position. But if you hold anything apart from that, well, it's okay for you privately, but you should never speak of that publicly. Never bring that out. That's for your own private opinion. What those with airtime miss is that most ideas that come into the world have at one stage been fringe, outside the mainstream, in opposition to the popularly held opinion. It's as if it was okay for me to disagree so I can get my view into power, but once it's in, I don't want anyone else voicing anything different from my view. But what about when Christians disagree? How do we think about that within the church? In this passage that we just had read for us, we get a, a disagreement within the church. In fact, we get two if you get further on in the chapter. And typically as Christians, we think disagreements are bad. We want to run away from them. Perhaps it's come from the ugliness of people arguing about seemingly inconsequential matters. Kind of people arguing about this and that and you're like, oh, why do you always go on about that? And you'd be right to think that way. Uh, Paul warns us in 2 Timothy um, 2.23, it's on the screen, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone. Now, there certainly are people who quarrel, who love to debate, and they're usually young men. Let's just be honest, guys. It's us, right? We love the argument. We love to fight, and we just want to show people something we've seen, or we just want to argue for the thing that's there. We, we can't let it go. We're like a dog with a bone. We've got to keep going on and on and on about it. And this is what Paul is writing to Timothy about. You know, some people get really irritated about the smallest little detail, like how you spell the word devastation. I don't know. How many of you are annoyed at that right now? A show of hands? Right. Now, did I put that in there to annoy you? Or was that part of my plan? Don't spend the rest of this sermon trying to work out how to spell devastation. I spelled it right the second time, so you can work out what I did there and what I didn't do. But for some people, they just can't get past that. It's so important. And they kind of want to come up to me later and there'll be a cue here helping me to understand how to spell properly. And you can go around on every outline, if you like, and put a little wriggle underneath. But, but we do this, don't we? We do this with some issues. They become so important. And we need to think about, does it really matter? And generally, as we think through the local church, we think disputes are bad. But... I want you to realize that we can end up on the other spectrum. We could be those people that avoid every dispute. We don't want to be involved with that. We don't want to talk about that. That doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. We just want everyone to love Jesus and be happy. We just want people to be united. We're about the church and being united. And so we shouldn't discuss these matters. We should just kind of be all friends and go out and think quite differently on some issues. As long as there's peace and unity. And what we've got in Acts 15 today is something that is disputed. It's probably one of the most important moments in world history. It's a core clarification that if we get wrong what they disputed in this chapter, we've lost the gospel. More than that, we've lost our salvation. 
And at the heart of this clarification are these two disputes. And what we find is that if we love disputes and always find ourselves in them, we're out of step with the Bible. We need to listen to that warning that Paul says in, in 2 Timothy. But if we avoid disputes or up the other end of the spectrum, we're just as much, maybe even more, out of step with the Bible and the apostles and how they acted. If we run from discussing disputes around doctrinal issues, perhaps we're even more out of step with the Bible than we think. Now, I'm not saying this to give all the young men permission to go and be arrogant tools. No. (laughs) Think carefully about what you say. Say it in love. Some of us here, we argue about too much. We do. We argue with too much intensity, too much rudeness, and there's not enough love and listening. You need to hear that warning. Some of us need to think through that. If you think I'm talking to you, work it out for yourself. Work out what God is saying. And come and ask me. I'll let you know. (laughs) Come and tell me. (laughs) If it's me, I'm happy to hear it. (laughs) But what we see here is that there are times when disagreeing and disputing with people is exactly what we need to do. The question is, how do we work out when to dispute and disagree? Well, a friend of mine calls it um, the more important than peace threshold. That's how you work it out. Write it down. The more important than peace threshold. If the issue is more important than people remaining at peace, then you need to dispute it. You need to work it out. It's bigger than just staying at peace with one another. But if it's not, let it go. <laughs> let it go. But how do you work out that threshold? Well, in this section, we come across two disputes. One between Paul and Barnabas at the end of the chapter, and the other at the start between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians. One of those really, really mattered. The other one, less so. (laughs) And so come with me and look at the facts of the dispute. Now, over the next three points, we're going to look at these two disputes with those same headings. Uh, We're going to look at the facts, what was at stake, and then how they resolve the disputes. So if you want a helpful way of doing it, you could draw a line down one third of the page, because the ones we look at with Paul and Barnabas will be about a third, and the other side will be about two thirds. So that'll kind of help you. We'll go through them and then see them there. That might help. It might not. I might have just kind of confused you. Um, We can dispute about that later. The facts. Paul and Barnabas. Let's start there. This is the the one third, the smaller section. Acts 15.36. Paul comes along and wants to visit the towns that they've preached the news of Jesus to uh, outside of Jerusalem, uh, throughout the the non-Jewish world. He wants to visit them and see how they're doing. Uh, Barnabas, who's been with Paul and who's done this mission to Antioch, he's kind of, they're kind of buddies together. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. Now remember, Peter got let out of prison uh, and he came to the house where they were gathered. That was the house of John Mark's mum. Uh, knocked on the door, the girl came, Peter's here. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Oh, yes, he is. Okay, uh, that's where he's at. So this is John Mark. Look at verse 38 of chapter 15. Paul insisted that they should not belong this man who deserted them in Pamphylia. And had, gone, had not gone on with them to do the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that Paul and Barnabas parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed after being commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of the Lord. He traveled through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Now, the facts of this disagreement is that it's all about the suitability of, of John Mark's task at hand. Now, if you remember much about Barnabas over the last few weeks, we've been working through this part of history. Barnabas was the encourager. He was the one that kind of went along and encouraged others and, and was this warm, oh, we'll give people a second chance and a third chance. We want to love them and build them up. He's this super encouraging guy. Uh, Colossians 4 tells us that John Mark was Barnabas's cousin. 
So there's kind of some, you know, family blood things that are kind of happening here. Uh, But just two chapters earlier, in Acts 13, 13, John Mark had had enough of this gospel mission with Paul and Barnabas. He decided to go back to Jerusalem. Now, Luke says nothing about it in the text other than it happens. But they're thinking about who to take on their next mission and how he acted matters. Paul was determined that John Mark didn't fit the bill as someone to take on this next mission. He wanted to leave him on the bench and take Silas instead. And so there's this great disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So much so they part company. The dynamic duo. They they, they part company. They go different ways. These church-planting gospel heroes that have known each other for 15 years, that had seen churches planted and encouraged people and been working together, Paul and Barnabas, they split It's like Oasis. It's bad. Maybe not bad. If you don't know who Oasis is, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's the facts of the dispute number one. Let's flip over to the other side and see the earlier one with the Jews and and the Gentile Christians. Acts 15.1. Some men came down from here and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now here the text tells us they come down from Judea and sometimes people are like, hang on, they're in Antioch, that's way north. And they come, um, they come down, and hang on, how does this work? Well, what you're seeing is they're coming down from the mountain. Uh, they're coming down from the center. It's that idea. They come down from the high place. But the direction isn't the issue. It's their origin. In Antioch, these, these Jew, non-Jewish Christians have been there. They've become Christians. They've trusted in the gospel that Paul and Barnabas have spoken. And then these people come in from the global center of Christianity, Jerusalem. This, this is the hub. This is where it all began. These guys were like the OGs of Christianity, the original gangsters, right? They were the original Christians. They were there when it happened and they've come along and they've, they've said, okay, guys, these non-Jewish Christians, it's great that you're Christian. It's great that you're trusting now in Jesus who was a Jew. This is awesome. And it's great you trust him as your king. But if you're going to become Jewish like Jesus was, you need to be Jewish fully. And circumcision was the sign that you were Jewish. Now, I don't know how you picked that from a distance, but that's what God set up. That circumcision was the sign that you were a Jewish male. It was a symbol given to Moses to signify that you were, you were following God's rule. You, you were sitting under the Old Testament law, that sacrificial system, that the food laws of the Old Testament, the purity laws. Everything given in the book of Leviticus that we looked at last year that outlined how different God's people were to be from the nations around them, how holy and these people from Jerusalem were saying, you guys have got to be like that too. You've got to take on the whole lot. All the washing, all the snipping, it's all got to be done for you. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they're like, this is a massive problem. Because what these people from Jerusalem were saying is that Jesus is not enough. Trusting Jesus' work on, on the cross, his death and resurrection, is not enough. You need to become culturally Jewish as well. And this caused such an issue for the, church, the churches in Antioch that they decide to send Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem, back to the mothership, back to the kind of the OGs, and kind of say to these people, hey, what, what are we doing? How are we working this out? We need to work this through because, well, what was at stake? What was at stake in this issue with the Jew and Gentile Christians? I'll tell you what was at stake. It's the next point in the bigger column. Eternity. Their salvation. Not just of them, but of the entire world. This was the the news of Jesus going out like God said that it would, and they've got to get this right. And if they've got it wrong, they've got to be able to work out 
Is this actually true? Is it just trusting in Jesus or do we need to be culturally Jewish as well? Now, if you apply that more important than peace threshold here, the consequences of getting eternity wrong isn't just a few broken relationships. It's the whole world going to hell because they've misunderstood what God has done in Jesus and they've tried to get there by what they do. It's throwing out what Jesus had worked to do, fulfilling the Old Testament. So Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem and it's clear that although everyone's excited about these non-Jews becoming Christians, that some of the believers who Luke tells us were Pharisees say this in verse 5 of chapter 15. It's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, these are believers. I know know Pharisees get a bad rap for all of the Gospels uh, because they were so law-based. But these were Pharisees who became believers. So there's hope for us all. Like Pharisees actually trust people who are kind of so law-based come and put their faith in Jesus. It shows you God's grace can extend to anyone. But there's something fundamental that they disagree with, and it really matters. And it actually causes division, even in Jerusalem, amongst kind of the apostles and elders. In verse 6, the apostles and elders that are there gather together. Now, the elders are kind of the leaders, um, those who are overseeing things that are going on in in the church. And the apostles are those that Jesus sent out. They're still alive. They get to go back to the apostles and and check it out. That's something that we can't do today. We can't just kind of um, go and chat to an apostle. They're dead. But they've written down the word of God for us. But they had this opportunity to go back and chat together. What was at stake? Eternity. That's why it mattered. But what about the other dispute? What about Paul and Barnabas in the John Mark dispute? What was at stake there? Well, it was missional philosophy, wasn't it? Who is the best person strategically to come with us? It wasn't core to the gospel. They were going to share the gospel with the world around, but it was who is the best person to come and support us? Who will continue for the run? Who'll be, who should we give a second chance to? And I think there were some core principles at play for Paul and Barnabas. I take it that for Barnabas, he'd recognize that people make mistakes. He was that encourager that I want to build them up. Yes, he can change. That's a really important principle. And he wants to bring his cousin along to see this go forward. But for Paul, dependability in the gospel worker was even more important. There's this gospel partnership at stake here as well between these two Christian workers, the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. That was what was at stake. question is, how big was it and did it matter? Well, how did Paul and Barnabas resolve that disagreement? It's the next point. You're still on the Paul and Barnabas side. How did they resolve the disagreement? Well, we noticed that there was no word from on high. They didn't hear a voice. You know, John Mark is the one you should take. With him, I am well pleased. That only happened with Jesus, right? Uh, Except it said Jesus. Uh, There there was no, okay, we need to go and speak uh, to God and then seek the Spirit's guidance. Um, They just made their calls and served God. They go, well, I'm convinced John Mark's a no, says Paul. Barnabas is like, I'm convinced he's a yes. And so Barnabas and John Mark go off and Paul picks Silas and they go off. Luke doesn't tell us who was right or wrong. He doesn't even tell us if there is a right or wrong here. It was not put forward to say that necessarily right and wrong are categories we should apply to this disagreement. What's interesting, though, is that God uses this disagreement to see gospel duplication happen. Two teams go out now. Now, it's not saying that, that we should all disagree, and therefore that's how we plant churches and send out workers. Not necessarily a good model to use, but it's what happens, and it's the way God works through it. You also see a little later that in 1 Corinthians 9, about 15 years after this, 
Paul calls Barnabas a fellow worker. So the difference, while it made them part company, didn't make them part from being in the same family of Christ. The difference hadn't disqualified anyone from following Jesus. What's also interesting is that the 2 Timothy verse earlier that we quoted, that we looked at, saying don't get into foolish and ignorant disputes, is followed by this, Timothy 2.24, The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Yes, we are to be careful about quarrelling, but in the very same context of these young punks being tools and quarrelling, Paul is saying, but make sure you teach the truth. They are to teach. There are matters that really do matter. They are to instruct. And that's why we need to understand how they resolve the dispute between Jew and Gentile. For Paul and Barnabas, they just went their separate ways. That was fine. They're still friends. They're still gospel workers. That's good. There's just different philosophies of how they do it. But for the Jew and Gentile, if you get this wrong, you aren't saved. So how do you resolve that sort of dispute? Well, let's work through what actually happens. In 15, 6 and 7, Peter stands up in this kind of church in Jerusalem. Uh, Peter, one of the inner three follower of Jesus, really one of the close ones who speaks too much. But then as, as he has the Spirit of God goes out and is the one who's been released from prison. Why did God release him from prison? Why did he go to such effort to get Peter this? Well, Peter was the one that originally had had the vision from God to say that Gentiles could be Christians. So Peter says in verse 7, and it's on the screen, By my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. And God knows the heart, God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. So Peter stands up and says, look, I actually proclaimed this news of Jesus to the Gentiles and God brought them to know him. Look at Acts eleven fifteen. Acts eleven fifteen. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came down on them, the, the, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, just as on us at the beginning. What's different? Nothing. He says, then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift he also gave to us Jews when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, and here's the conclusion, so then God has given repentance, resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Peter remembers what God had said to him and declares, no, Gentile and Jew come in in the same way. They got the same gift of the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit exactly as the Jews had on that day in Pentecost in Acts 2. That meant it was impossible to say that they weren't part of the new kingdom God was gathering together by the preaching of the gospel, this news of Jesus. So in verse 9, Peter says, God made no distinction between them and us, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now it also shows that the giving of the Holy Spirit comes at conversion. It's part of the sign for the early church and for all believers. It's the reality that the Spirit comes when we trust in Christ. We trust in Christ because of the work of the Spirit. It's not a second and subsequent experience, as some would say. When you trust Jesus for His work in the cross, when you put your life in His hand, God puts His Spirit in us, that we might see who He is and trust Him and live for Him. Don't separate those two. They come together. Well, then Peter 
says, to make these Gentiles obey the Jewish customs, it wasn't a prerequisite for God. We preached the gospel to the Gentiles. God gave them the spirit. We didn't say, all right, trust in Jesus. And before you do that, go and get circumcised. Make sure you do the, the ritual washings. You know, spend three days washing here. Do the, he didn't do any of that. God just went boom. And they trusted in Christ. So if it was good enough for God to give them the spirit of God, for God's spirit to live in them by the preaching of the word and them trusting Christ alone, why should we place a burden on them that's greater than what God did? A yoke, he calls it, like an oxen with this kind of heavy load that they've got to try and do. I mean, and for the guys amongst us, who wants to stand up and go, yeah, I'll be circumcised for this? It's not a pleasant experience, I'd imagine. And it's not just that. It's adding the whole law. If we remember back to the Old Testament, what the whole Old Testament tells us is that no one could keep the law. Israel kept falling over. They kept turning back. They kept rejecting God. The law was to show us, Paul says, that we sin, that we fall short. Peter's saying if we make them do this, we're making it harder than God does. We're placing the expectations of what we've been freed from to trust in Christ. Then they pull up Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas come to the front. They explain what's happened in in their journey. Sharing the news of Jesus, they describe the events that have gone on. They describe the signs and wonders amongst the non-Jews, just like the things that happened amongst the Jews. Showing The signs and wonders were showing that God is really at work. What's happened to the Jews is actually happening to the Gentiles. It's not that signs and wonders have an amazing power to bring people to Christ. It's saying, hey, Gentiles come to Christ the same way Jews do, by the work of God, Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the way God testifies to the fact that Jew and Gentile can now be one in Jesus, forgiven and set free, not because of their customs, but solely because of the work of Jesus. Then we hear from James, the half-brother of Jesus. It seems that James is, is, is the main leader of this early church in Jerusalem. And look at how he responds to the argument. He's heard Peter, God spoke, I did this, I'm an apostle, this is what happened. The Gentiles became Christians the same way. Uh, we've we've then heard uh, from Paul and Barnabas about how it's actually happened as they've shared the gospel. Then James stands up. And and look, look, this is really important to work out how we think through disputes. Chapter 5, verse 13. After they stopped speaking, James responded, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Simon, which is Peter, he's using his Jewish name here, just recognizing his old name, has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. And the words of the prophet agree with this, as it's written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those amongst the Gentiles who turn to God. He quotes Amos 9. He quotes an Old Testament prophet and said, God's always been about this. He could have said, go back to the promise to Abraham at the very beginning that I'll make your name great and through you I will bless the whole world. It's the big storyline of the Bible that God is bringing people to himself through the Jews to make a new people in Christ who is the true Jew. And here he's saying, God promised that even the Gentiles... All the Gentiles who are called by my name are part of this new humanity. So he goes back to what God has spoken of in the scriptures, what God had previously said. He doesn't seek a new word from God. He recognizes that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. 
His plans and purposes become clearer and clearer throughout salvation history. We need to test what has been said, test what we think against what God said by His Spirit in His Word. And here is the core of what this whole debate is about. It's the doctrine of justification by faith alone. None of us can actually do what the law requires. That's what they've recognized. That's the point of the law. We all fall short. We don't even keep our own principles and guidelines in our life, let alone God's. But the news of the gospel, this good news, why it's called a gospel, momentous news. It's why we're called an evangelical church. Because evangelical, is the euangelion, is the Greek word for gospel. We're a church that's excited about the good news. The good news is we don't have to do, we don't have to be perfect. Jesus has done it for us. We don't have to fulfill the law because Jesus did it in our place. That's exactly what um, had been said in Acts 13, 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified, is declared right before God through Jesus from everything that you could not be justified, declared right before God for through the law of Moses. When you hear that statement, it should have this response. Oh, like I, I no longer have to be perfect because Jesus has done it for me. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled God's, all of God's requirements and he's come and lived and died in my place and he's offered me his perfect life in place of mine. Suddenly I can trust him and not have to have this yoke that I've got to try and work through and consistently offering sacrifice after sacrifice because I stumble and fail. This is what the Bible calls the grace of God. And grace just means gift. It's something that you can't earn. And when I first started working, uh, I started working for my dad was my first job. And I uh, worked in his business. And I still remember he would give me at the end of the fortnight a little yellow envelope with my pay in cash inside it. There was a few coins and a couple of notes. It wasn't too much. Um, I was doing some design work for him. But he kind of, dad would give it to me. And it was, I'd work for it. I'd earned it. I was like, thanks, dad. But in, in a sense, I was kind of like, well, I've, I've, you owe me this. And if it was a bit short, I'd be like, what, what, what happened here? Like, I thought I worked those extra hours. He'd be like, oh, did you? Okay. And he'd fix it because I was owed to that. When I got that envelope from Dad, I didn't go, oh, Dad, thanks so much. Like, I really don't feel like I've, I've deserved this. I was like, no, you, you owe it to me. I, I slaved doing all that stuff for you. And you, you, you had an agreement. And now I've got to kind of, I've, you need to pay me. That's working for something. In a sense, that's what the law had. That It showed us, the Old Testament law, that we, we didn't match up. We could try and try and try, but it was never enough. But now, by grace, by a gift, we're given. Uh, this, this is something that someone has done for us. If someone gives you a gift, you don't be like, oh, look, how, how, how much do I owe you? You pull out your wallet. No, no, it's a gift. No, 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 no. Look, at, come on, how, how much do I owe you? No, no, I, it's a gift. And it shows, while we love the idea of gifts... We actually hate the idea of not being able to do it ourselves. There's something about our human nature that says, I want to work for it, I want to earn it. And this trips us up. That's what's tripping up. These Christian believers who were Pharisees, who are thinking about the cultural realities of being a Jew, they're getting tripped up. They're not recognizing that it's fully done in Jesus. And not many of us think that, yes, Jesus died for me. I want to add circumcision to what I do in my life. Not many of us think that way is my, my hunch, Right? But I often come across people that are worried that they're not good enough for God. How often have you had that thought? Maybe God looks at me and says, you're not good enough. 
You haven't done enough. You don't think the right way. You don't act the right way. You said that thing. You did that thing. And we're like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not. Friends, the reality is we're not good enough for God. The great news of the gospel is that Jesus is, and it does not depend on us in any way, shape or form, on what I do, on me being good enough for him. Paul says in Colossians 2, he says this, Even though you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, you, you rebelled against God, you, you lived in an ungodly way, He nevertheless made you alive with Him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He's destroyed what was against us, a certificate in indebted, of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. He's made a public disgrace of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You were dead. I want you to think about someone who is dead. What can they do themselves to back to life? You, you, you can't kind of go and kind of make your heart, because you're dead. You, you, can't, you can't say, help me, you're dead. You can't just think lying dead, flat, nothing. Paul says you were dead. Dead because of the way you responded to God. There was nothing you could do. You were the living dead. You could try, but the law kept showing you you could not do it. And there was a record of everything you've ever said, done, and thought. Nailed up to say, this person is dead in future as well. Because they've rejected God. They deserve God's judgment. We've turned our backs on Him and have not treated Him as we ought. We deserve to be punished for all the things that we've done wrong. But Paul says what Jesus did is he took everyone's kind of record of debt. While we were all dead, everyone that he would choose, he brought them and he nailed them to the cross and said, I'll pay for it all. When? While we were dead. If you don't trust Jesus today, he is not your king. Paul is saying, you're dead. For all of us here, we were at one point dead. And the one who wakes us up is God and God alone. Perhaps for you, he's doing that right now. As you think through this doctrine that matters, that is probably one of the most important moments of world history, you're hearing that before God you deserve death and judgment and hell because of the way you've acted. and That's what your reality will be. But that God spoke through Jesus and that by his spirit now he's waking you up. He's reaching into that soft, soothing darkness, that rebellion that we so often love to dwell in and go, oh, this is great. This feels nice lying in my death. And God's saying to you, wake up. We can't do it of our own. But maybe, just maybe, His Spirit through His Word today, God is saying to you, wake up. Listen to Him. Accept the life He offers. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. Jesus has paid the price for your sin. He nailed it to the cross and said, it is done. And when he did that, he took the punishment that we deserve. That's the grace of the gospel. That's the only way anyone is saved. And it's the only way we can, can continue in the Christian life, depending on what Jesus did for us. A number ago, I met someone who had tried to take their life because they kept feeling like they weren't good enough for God. They've done all sorts of things to try and feel better about their relationship with God. Crazy devotional patterns, prayers, fasting, denying themselves worldly pleasures, 
trying every possible law that God had given them, trying to fulfill that. It drove this guy crazy until finally, finally, as he tried to please God and think through, how can I be good enough? And was in this complete pit of depression. He read Romans 1.17, that the righteous will live by faith. That the righteous, those who are declared right in God's sight, those who are perfect, will live by faith, by trusting, relying, depending, righteousness. My relationship with God comes through me trusting in what Jesus has done. The man's name was Martin Luther. And when he discovered that very truth being disputed here in Acts 15, he could not help but speak and go out into the world and say, Jesus has died for you. It is finished. It is done. Trust him. He lit up the Protestant Reformation and the word of God ended up being translated into the language of the common people. People heard the news of salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, through the scriptures alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And it changed the world. It's the best news the world has ever heard. Your future does not depend on anything you do or say, but what Jesus has done for you. That's why Christians have certainty. It doesn't depend on what I do, it's what he has done. What this episode shows us in Acts 15 is that what you think about doctrine matters. It matters immensely. You can't just say, love Jesus and everything will work out all right. It's just a matter of opinion. What it shows us is that you add anything to Jesus, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And so the apostles and the elders, they write a letter And they send some people back to Antioch to pass on the the kind of relieving conclusion. No circumcision, guys. No, No fulfilling the law of all these ways. It's all been done by Jesus. Now, what's interesting is they do put some kind of guidelines on it. And you're like, what? They are putting other, other things there they need to do. Um, watch out for sexual immorality, foods offered um, to idols. Why is that? Well, I don't want to go through all the different theories. I want to just say quickly, what they're saying is if you've become a Christian in following Jesus... The things that are stumbling blocks for us Jews who, who the word of God came originally through are you serving these other gods, these other idols. I, when I was in Corinth a couple of years ago, you could see that the temple was kind of up on this big mountain and there's all this market of, of food kind of um, being sold to idols and there's prostitutes up on the temple and that's, that's how you serve God. You go and have sex with temple prostitutes and eat food sacrificed to idols. That's what they did. What, what, what they're saying is, You no longer live that way. Don't draw the other Jews back into that. Now trust in Christ. He's holding out the cultural stumbling blocks that we had. So how do we decide today what matters to unite on and what matters to divide on? Well, I drew some pictures. So let me show you a couple of pictures. This here is like a web. Uh, It's a web of what I'm mapping out. The Bible says... You, you see um, here in the center, the next picture, this is what's clear. You can see that kind of pentagon, hexagon shape. That's what the Bible is very clear on. Uh, and it's central and is defended throughout the scriptures. You might call that the gospel. There's a gospel center to everything the Bible says. And those little dots all over this web are other things that the Bible says. Now, what we, when we see the ones on the outside of the web, the next picture, you see they're less clear. So you've got clear towards the middle of the web. The things that are outside are less clear or less central. Now, um, what we then realize is that all those dots are connected like a spider's web. Uh, And they've kind of got these arms that go out. And and what we see is that while some things are kind of 
not that central, like circumcision. Let's see. Uh, Paul says that circumcision is nothing. So it would be out here. Do you see that? It's kind of at, at an extremity. It's that little point there. Uh, Paul says circumcision, it's really nothing in 1 Corinthians 7. It doesn't really matter. But as soon as you say you must be circumcised, if you move it from it being nothing to being core, it's like moving it to this position. Now, I don't know if you noticed, it changed the shape of the core. Moving something on the outside that was kind of maybe not that important, not that central, it didn't matter, circumcision, yay or nay. As soon as you said it matters, it changed the shape. The gospel moved from this little shape in the middle, used to look like that. Now, when we say circumcision is required, it moves to this picture, which is different. So the way we think about doctrinal issues is we need to think about how they affect the center, how they affect what is core and clear. We can't just say, oh, look, some issues are really important, some issues aren't, because issues of circumcision don't really matter. But if you say that they are required, oh, it matters a lot. We need to do more than just say, well, the Bible says. We need to see the Bible says that this is connected to that in this way. And if we move this thing out here that's like, yeah, it could be here or there, it might change the shape of the center. The same thing with baptism. How do we do baptism? How important is baptism? Well, you know, there are differing views. The moment you say that baptism is required, it's like saying, well, you must fulfill the law. It changes the shape of the gospel, that it's not by God's grace. We need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And this, is a really, this web thinking is a really helpful way of thinking about how every issue I'm thinking through affects the core. If it really doesn't affect the core, it's probably not worth dividing over. But if it does, then the gospel's at stake. And we need to make sure that we work out what we're thinking. Now, we want to do it lovingly, uh, um, with, with generosity toward one another. But we need to see how it affects the core. And that leads us to the last point today. The devastation of division. I spelt it right here. The devastation of division is not always division. We need to hear that today. I think in our culture, sometimes we, we pull back so much from disagreement that we just don't want to say anything. We just want to keep the peace. We need to hear that is not in step in these issues that are core with the gospel and with the first church. There are issues that we need to dispute. We need to test at the apostles first taught. We can't go to them, but we can go to their word. Spend time clearing issues up. That's why as a church we have things like connect groups to, to discuss, to grow in our understanding of what God said, to say, look, here's what I think, but what do you guys think? And we, we sit under the word of it and apply it to one another and wrestle of how do we apply this to our lives and what do we think about that? Not just so we get head knowledge about this is who God is, but so we can work out how to live because doctrine matters. So I provide daily Bible reading notes to kind of grow us all in the Word of God, to be understanding more of Scripture so we can know God's will. It's why we spend time explaining the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus. It's why it's important to know what's going on and understand why in its context and then how the New Testament authors apply the Old Testament. Because if their Word is the, is the Word of God, then the way they apply it is God's way of applying it. What we think matters and it determines how we live. And sometimes that means there'll be division and that's a good thing. Division is not always bad. With Paul and Barnabas, there was a difference there, but it didn't divide everyone. It wasn't kind of such an issue that it had to go to this big thing. Now, by the way, sometimes that thing that happened in Jerusalem is called the Jerusalem Council. I don't think it's a good word. 
I think it's just what they did at that point. I don't think we should work out church governance by working out councils because that's what happened in that case. They went to the apostles. We don't have apostles today. We can't do that. We go to the Word of God and we apply the Word of God with the eldership and leadership of the local church. Why do they go back to Jerusalem? Because it was a Jew-Gentile issue. Not because that was where the font of all knowledge flowed out from. But with Paul and Barnabas, it shows that God can use disagreements in ministry philosophy and the way we apply things to, to, to do good. It also shows us that leaders don't have it all right. They don't always agree. And that's okay. None of us have arrived at perfection yet. Paul says that in Philippians 2, 1 Timothy 1. shows that the Christian life and ministry is made up of judgment calls at times. And that's what you're getting in this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. In so many areas in the Scriptures, there's no specific right or wrong way to go. The, the Scriptures don't say when we should plant a church, or what staff to hire, or what ministries should start up or stop, or what we should do with the limited resources that we have. We get principles that we need to apply and make judgment calls on. And we need to remember that sometimes we'll differ on those. Leaders need to remember that we'll be judged more harshly, that we're accountable for the calls that we make, but also dependent on the grace and mercy of God, knowing that Jesus has offered it all and that my future and salvation does not depend on my works, but on His. We also need to test each decision, test each judgment, not only on what the Scriptures say, but on what is clear and core. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas wasn't bad. Bitterness, envy, gossip, resentment, they're bad. When people go, can you, they say, Paul said this, Barnabas did that, ooh. You know, and people start talking through those things. It's okay. We'll, in this church, we'll have people that disagree. The pastors disagree sometimes. Sometimes around doctrinal issues, we've talked through some of them. Uh, that's okay. It's all right. Because in the end, they end up being judgment calls. And if they're, if they're more core, they're worked through. But this dispute, if it's not a judgment call, like what was happening here in the start of Acts 15, had eternity at stake. You know, 503 years ago, this very day in Germany, I know it's tomorrow for us, but we're in the future. At this moment in, in Germany, somewhere in the last 24 hours, Martin nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church in Germany. He went, this matters. He wanted the, Roman, the Catholic Church, the one universal church, to continue. But he was so convinced that justification by faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone, through Scripture alone, was so important that he went, someone's got to speak. And because he spoke, that means you and I today can know that it doesn't depend on what I do in order to be saved, but on the completed and finished work of Jesus. Friends, don't make the same mistake that the Catholic Church did. Delight, revel, be filled with joy that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, for those who trust in Him, His words were as true for you and me as they were for Him. It is finished. Our sins have been paid. The punishment has been poured out on Him so that we can stand forgiven. And then in the freedom of living for Him, the news of the gospel gives us a great Oh, and a freedom to serve, to live for what is right. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray. Father God, as we see this moment in history today and what was at stake, we ask you to help us as a church to hold your word as that ultimate authority, to keep testing everything against what the apostles have first taught and see how issues affect the core. 
We ask that you'd help us to speak up when we need to speak up and to shut up when we need to shut up. You'd show us where we're being arrogant and discussing things that are really trivial and worrying about the small things rather than worrying about the center. We thank you so much that Jesus came and died in our place. That as he died on that cross, he took the penalty for sin so that we could be forgiven and we could stand before you and call you our father and the new creation, our home, and know that our forgiveness is not tied up in anything that we have done. Forgive us, Lord, when we think that we're not good enough and we think that we can be. Help us to recognize that Jesus has done it for us and to revel and delight and love serving you because of the grace that you've shown us in your son. Pray this in His almighty name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.